We've been working through the book of Revelation now for several months, and we're very much nearing the end. In fact, I already preached on the last two chapters of Revelation last Sunday morning, but I only showed you one of the things that is in the last couple chapters of Revelation, and there's actually a lot more than one thing. Last week, we, we focused on the very central idea of the last two chapters of Revelation, that there are only two ultimate destinies for mankind. Everybody either ends up in the lake of fire or in the new creation, as Revelation 21 and 22 puts it. However, there is a lot more in these last two chapters of Revelation, and I'd be negligent to fail to highlight some other important concepts before we wrap up this study here in Revelation, God willing, on December 10th. So there will be three more sermons on Revelation, including today, two more after today. And here is this morning's big idea. We're not covering everything in Revelation 21 and 22. In fact, we're not even covering everything in the verses I just read for you. Here is this morning's big idea. Exclusively immaterial piety is unbiblical piety. In more down-to-earth language, if your conception of Christian life and duty and experience and hope is exclusively immaterial, not related to physical things, does not account for bodies and earth and animals and plant life and so on and so forth, then your conception of Christian life and duty and experience and hope is unbiblical. Let us begin with a consideration of the incarnation as it applies to eschatology. And the incarnation, of course, is the doctrine of Christ's becoming man, taking on flesh, and eschatology is simply the study of last things, or end times. Gregory of Nazianzus in the the 4th century said this, that which he, that is Jesus, that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. If only half of Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saves may be half also. But if the whole of Adam's nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten and so be saved as a whole. It's a mouthful, but let me put it uh, in simpler terms here. Whatever parts of Adam became corrupt and sinful and guilty and broken... Those parts Jesus had to take to himself in order to redeem us. So Gregory of Nazianzus is saying, if only half of Adam fell, then Jesus could take a half human nature or half of a human nature. But if the whole man fell, then Jesus had to take to himself the nature of a whole man. That's what Gregory of Nazianzus is saying. As we know... Jesus took on not only a human soul, but also a human body. 2 John chapter 1 and verse 7 
actually puts it very, very starkly. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. If you don't believe that Jesus had a human body, that Jesus took to himself a human body in the incarnation, John says, you are an antichrist. That's very strong terms. That's a very, it's not a debatable point of Christian theology, whether or not Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now, let's try to unpack this idea of the incarnation and how it relates to our redemption, as Gregory of Nazianzus was talking about, and then how this relates to eschatology, which is end times. Because at first you might think, what does the incarnation have to do with the end times? Let's, let's try to get there. Adam sinned as a human. He broke the law that God gave to humans. And he plunged the human race into guilt and misery, as the catechisms say. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Hebrews 10 tells us. And the reason is because bulls and goats are not humans. We cannot atone for human sin. Shockingly, the same logic would apply, for example, to angels. It is impossible. I I mean, I don't know if angels have blood or not, but let's put it this way. We could say with equal theological accuracy, it is impossible for the blood of angels to take away sin. This is the logic of atonement throughout the scriptures. A non-human representative, a non-human vicarious sacrifice cannot atone for human sin. And so it was necessary that Christ Jesus take to Himself a human nature. To say it more precisely, that the Son of God before Jesus of Nazareth was ever born in Bethlehem. It was necessary that that be the plan. And that in due time, there was a little human baby, Jesus, who would act as a second Adam, a representative like the first Adam was, acting not just for himself, but for others whom he represented. It was necessary that Jesus was a human and live a human life of righteousness, obedience to God's law, where Adam failed to obey. And then that Jesus, as man, with a true human nature, would die on the cross vicariously as a substitute for human sinners so that God would punish a human substitute for human sin or for other human sinners and count us 
as righteous for the sake of that human's righteousness and consider our sin propitiated and atoned for because of that human's death on the cross. If Jesus only took to himself, for example, a human soul, the logic of Gregory of Nazianzus, which I think is quite biblical, is that only human souls could be saved. Because only human souls would have been, would have had the work of redemption accomplished on their behalf. Likewise, if Jesus had only taken to himself a human body and not a human soul, only human bodies could have been redeemed, as it were. This is what he's saying. If only half of Adam fell, then Jesus could have taken to himself only half of human nature. But because body and soul throughout, pervasively, throughout all of our faculties, we were plunged into guilt and misery, Christ Jesus took upon himself all of our faculties. He took to himself all of our constituent parts. He took to himself a human soul and a human body. And in true, full human nature, not just one half like a human, but one who is fully human, Jesus acted in our room instead, on our behalf, earning for us the righteousness that we needed, and then bearing in himself the penalty that we deserve. And because we have a human representative, a human substitute, a human who acted vicariously in our place because of what Jesus has done in his human life and his human dying and his human rising, we may be saved. We humans may have hope. This is the gospel and this is the relation of the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh and becoming human, to the gospel. Now what does all of this have to do with eschatology, which is end times? The, es- the, the incarnation is important to understand for several reasons, including the reason that it teaches us not only what men are, what humans are, but what we shall be at the culmination of our salvation. Let's just say hypothetically, if Jesus had only taken to himself a human soul and only came to rescue human souls and not human bodies, what would that indicate to us about the importance of the body in the long term, in eternity? We'd say, well, I guess it doesn't really matter, seeing as Jesus just saw fit to leave our bodies unredeemed. And he came to act only on behalf of our souls. Conversely, we can reason from the fact that because Jesus came, not just to redeem our souls, but in order that our bodies may be redeemed. In order that we may have the hope, not just of our souls being absent from the body and present with the Lord, but that in addition to that, that we might have the hope of the soul and the body one day actually being reunified and reunited as our bodies are raised up from the grave. If Jesus came to save not only our souls, but our bodies, 
that we might have the hope of bodily, physical resurrection, what should that tell us about the end times? What should that tell us about eschatology? You see? If Jesus took on not only a human soul, but a human body, in order that not just human souls, but human bodies would be redeemed, this tells us that human bodies are important in the long term. Human bodies are not just something we happen to find ourselves in, like this shirt I'm wearing today, or whatever garment you decided to put on, and then at some point in the future we'll just put off these bodies. The fact that Jesus came and took to Himself a human soul and a human body, in order that human souls would be redeemed and that human bodies would be redeemed and raised in the end, that tells us that human bodies are important to eschatology for the long term that we're going to be in bodies in eternity now moving along let me remind you of the distinction between the spiritual vision concept of heaven and the new creation concept of heaven which I elaborated on or introduced to you um, I will elaborate on it today I introduced it to you a few weeks ago let me elaborate on it today As I was explaining a few weeks ago, people read the philosopher Plato and then taught something. Whether or not Plato meant to say what these people taught, or whether these people misread Plato and then taught what they thought Plato said, is kind of neither here nor there. All right? Plato scholars debate whether Plato actually taught what I'm about to explain to you or not. That doesn't really matter. It's neither here nor there. The reality is that due to the influence of Plato's philosophy, whether properly interpreted or not, due to the influence of Plato's philosophy, some people began to think, as they interacted with Plato's work, that there is a better, purer, immaterial plane of existence essentially above us or beyond us as it were and this material world we live in where we can touch stuff and where we're in bodies this material world is a lesser plane of existence it's not as good as the pure immaterial world the way that a shadow is a lesser thing than whatever form it reflects. Likewise, the material world is a lesser thing than whatever sort of pure abstract concept it reflects. Christians ran with this idea, or it, it made inroads, shall I say, into the Christian world. And Many Christians started thinking of heaven as that perfect immaterial place where one day we will escape from this physical world and our bodies which hold us back and we will go to this immaterial better world where there is no stuff to touch and feel and limit us and keep us back from this purer, higher, immaterial mode of existence. When we get to immaterial heaven, 
some Christians began to think, we will be living on that superior plane of existence. A scholar named Craig Blazing explains that the view of eschatology or end times that dominated the thinking of the church, the early church, prior to the popularization of this misunderstanding was what we might call the new creation model of eternal life. Blazing explains that the new creation model expects that the ontological order and scope of eternal life is essentially continuous with that of present earthly life, except for the absence of sin and death. So essentially, prior to this philosophy of Plato becoming kind of popularized and adapted and adopted by the church, Christians basically did not hope to escape from the body and go to an immaterial world. Rather, Christians hoped for the redemption and resurrection of the body, and nor was the hope of God's people to escape from the physical earth, but rather, the hope of Christians was rather the redemption and the renewal of the physical earth. But as Platonic thought was incorporated into and popularized in Christian theology of heaven by men like Origen and Augustine, Augustine, who is very good overall, by the way, Origen, not so much. Gradually, this new creation model gave way to what we might call the spiritual vision model of eschatology, in which the Christian hope took on a different shape. Blazing expands. In the spiritual vision model of eternity, heaven is the highest level of ontological reality. It is the realm of spirit as opposed to base matter. This is the destiny of the saved who will exist in that non-earthly spiritual place as spiritual beings engaged eternally in spiritual activity. So gradually this idea that the immaterial world is better began to influence the Christian's view of heaven. And, And many Christians started thinking of heaven as an immaterial, purely spiritual place and not a physical place. So we leave our bodies behind, we leave this physical earth behind, and we go to be in a spiritual, immaterial place. Now, against this spiritual vision model of heaven, the early church father Irenaeus said this, Since there are real men, and by real he means physical, since there are real men, so there must also be a real establishment, in other words, a physical world, that they vanish not away from among non-existent, that they vanish not away among non-existent things, but progress among those which have an actual existence. For neither is the substance nor the essence of the creation annihilated, for faithful and true is he who has established it, but the fashion of the world passes away, as it says in 1 Corinthians 7.31. So Irenaeus is saying, look, we know from the Bible that Jesus came and took on a human soul and a human body. And that human bodies are going to be resurrected. Now, if human bodies are going to be resurrected, where are they going to live? There has to be a physical place for the physical bodies 
of resurrected Christians to be. Creation is not going to be annihilated, Irenaeus says, but rather this present form or this present fashion of the world is passing away, as 1 Corinthians 7.31 puts it. If there are going to be real men, physical men, there needs to be a real place, a physical place for them to be. And a real place is exactly what the Bible teaches, physical place. I would remind you of Isaiah 65, 17 to 25, again, which I read for you a few weeks ago, which says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord, and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. As I asked you a few weeks ago, reading that or listening to that, wouldn't you expect at least some level of earthly material fulfillment to a promise like that about new heavens and new earth? And there are other Old Testament examples of this sort of thing, plentiful other Old Testament examples of this sort of thing, where hope is held out in very earthly terms. Consider even Psalm 37 which we read this morning. The evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Or the land promises to Abram. You and your descendants shall possess the land. In the New Testament, Romans 4 and verse 13 interprets the land promises originally made to Abram as concerning not just Canaan, but the whole world. And the heirs of the promise to be not just Abram's biological seed, but all those who have the righteousness that comes by faith, as Abram did. So believers, Jews and Gentiles, together inherit the world. Romans 4.13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, 
did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So Romans 4 takes the land promises made to Abram, and it says those who share the faith of Abraham become heirs of that promise. And they inherit not just Canaan, but the world, according to Romans 4.13. Then Romans 8.19-21 tells us explicitly that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Romans 8, beginning at 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be, free, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And coming to our text today, we're not spending a lot of time in Revelation 21, but I'm just trying to show you conceptually what's there in Revelation 21. Coming to that chapter, I want to highlight that Revelation gives us the image of God coming down to dwell on the earth with His people, rather than His people ultimately going up to dwell with Him. Look at Revelation 21 and the directional language it contains. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. This is nothing really new. This has already been taught to us already in other parts of the Scripture that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, you might say, well, that's God's people. But don't forget, God is in that city. As we saw last week in chapter 22 and verse 3, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Which means, essentially, the very throne room of God that we saw in Revelation 4, in the imagery of Revelation, is coming down from its place up there to be down here in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the imagery of Revelation 21. And verse 3 tells us, I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Behold the dwelling place, or tabernacle, though your footnote might say, of God is with man. Now, if, as I've said to you guys before, and trying to make this same point, if I said, let's, let's say that, for example, my friend, let's call him Bill, 
and I started living in the same house. It does make a difference if I say, I went to live with Bill, or if I say, Bill came to live with me. Those indicate slightly different things. Behold, the dwelling place of Bill is with John. Is different than behold, the dwelling place of John is with Bill. You see? And the way the language is here is behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. In the imagery of Revelation, John is caught up to the throne room in Revelation chapter 4. But in Revelation chapter 21, the place where the throne of God and the Lamb is comes down out of heaven to the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I agree, this may just be symbolism, as much of Revelation is, and as I've indicated to you, I believe much of the other aspects of Revelation are. I don't think, personally, that there is going to be a city in the new heavens and the new earth with walls as long as, I was saying last week, from here to the Bahamas, and then over to Mexico City, and then down from Mexico City to Panama City, Panama, and then Panama City back to Barbados, and then those lengths being the same as their height. That's the way the New Jerusalem is described in Revelation chapter 21. I don't personally think that's literal. As I explained to you last week, Christians may dif- differ on that and disagree on that, and that's fine. I personally do, I do take it as symbolism. And so I can see that, yeah, okay, well, the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven to the new heavens and the new earth is symbolism. But given that we are taught elsewhere that the earth is made new and that God will dwell with us and be our God and that we shall inherit the earth, but we're not going to be living forever apart from God, but that God is actually going to dwell with us for eternity, the imagery here in this symbolic passage is consistent with what we are taught in non-symbolic passages elsewhere in Scripture. Moreover, if it is a symbol, it would not make sense that God coming down and His throne room coming down is meant to be a symbol of us going up to His throne room. In other words, there should be some correspondence between a symbol and the thing signified. As I was saying last week, if we take the lake of fire, for example, as symbolic, which I do, we don't therefore reason from that, that since it's symbolic, there is no hell. Rather, we say, well, if the symbol of hell that God has seen fit to give us is a lake of fire, hell must be terrible. Because the lake of fire is a very terrible symbol or image for that place where unbelievers end up. In other, in other words, our, sim, our understanding of symbolism and imagery still has to be guided by the fact that there's going to be correspondence between the symbol and the thing signified. And Revelation contains both John and God's people going up at various times. So that imagery is not without precedent. And if God meant to teach us that we will ultimately go up, He could have easily just had John go up in a vision 
in Revelation 21 to the New Jerusalem. And if that was what 21 was intended to convey, that ultimately we go up to God's dwelling place, that probably would have been a more fitting symbol. So I don't think it's insignificant that we see the opposite. Even if it's couched in symbolic language and symbolic terms, God, in the, in the symbolism of Revelation 21, God comes to make His dwelling place with us. The throne room, which was up there in chapter 4, comes down in chapter 21. And makes creation, and God makes creation itself, as well as our bodies, new. And fellowships with us in the new creation, living among us. This is a more biblically faithful conception of heaven than the spiritual vision model described earlier, which comes more from Plato than from exegesis of Scripture itself. And I believe that this is worth highlighting as we finish up Revelation. Why? Well, let us consider a couple of applications. First, a doctrinal application, which is to avoid error to avoid our con- conceptions being drawn more from ancient philosophers than from the scripture. We're reformed. We don't want to be wrong, right? We can't, we can't be having bad doctrine, all right? So doctrinally, we want to try to be on the right path here and think correctly about this issue. But practically, it shapes the way that we As I was saying at the beginning of this sermon, it shapes the way that we think about Christian life and experience and Christian hope. In such a way that we come to value much more so things like our bodies and the earth and animals and so forth. Now on the one hand, You will not preserve these. If you just go away today and say, well, my body's important, so I'm never going to let it die. Just going to make sure I do all the healthy things, make all the right choices. Look, if my body matters to God, I'm not going to let it die. Well, obviously that's not going to happen. Likewise, if you just say, okay, well, obviously the earth is important to the Lord. So I'm going to become an environmental activist and we will not let the earth perish or, or degrade or however we say. We're just going to fix it. All the things that are wrong with the earth, we'll repair them and then the earth will be alright. Obviously that's not going to happen. Right? You're not going to eliminate uh, environmental problems or problems in your body or whatever. You're not going to preserve these things, your body, the earth, animals, whatsoever. But it's not correct, therefore, to reason, well, I guess they don't matter. They're all going to die anyway. If, in fact, what God intends for us is a very physical, eternal life, in new bodies, in a new earth, new creation, then these things matter actually very much. This should affect choices that we make about our bodies. Diet. Exercise, etc. 
we mustn't become myopic as if this is the only moral issue to think about. And we should rather balance those kinds of considerations against other moral duties such as the availability and price of healthy food and budget and time and how much, how much time is realistic and sensible and prudent and responsible to give to these things. And pray, we should embrace a certain pragmatic realism. We can do what we can to take care of our bodies. But at the same time, we should not just say, well, it's just my body, so it doesn't matter. What God really cares about is me taking care of my soul. So all of this, what I'm teaching you today, should affect the way we think about our bodies and the choices that we make. David Murray, who is a Christian counselor, says, everyone who walks through his door, he prescribes three pills immediately. Diet, exercise, and sleep. You know, if you're not already, start eating better, start exercising, and prioritize sleep. Because he's noted that there are so many things that present as psychological or you know, emotional, relational kind of disorders, which actually stem from the fact that we are psychosomatic beings who are not just souls and psyches, but also bodies. And so Murray recognizes the wisdom of taking care of our bodies as sort of a healthy baseline for once you've done that and your, your body is as healthy as you can reasonably get it, if there's still remaining outstanding psychological issues, emotional issues, relational issues that we need to work through, that's fine, but let's do it from that foundation. So three pills, so to speak, diet, exercise, and good sleep. He prescribes, says to everyone, jokingly, as he, you know, everyone who comes through the door prescribes those three pills. Likewise, as Christians, we should think about the environment differently as a result of what I'm explaining to you today from the scriptures. From considerations about littering and recycling and burning refuse on a personal level to national policies on energy sources and stuff like that. I'm not taking a position on any of these things, by the way. Right? But I'm saying they are moral considerations that we ought to think about as Christians. We ought to consider what is sensible and responsible and honoring to God in terms of stewarding the earth and realizing that the physical as well as the spiritual matters to God. These are not amoral issues that have no moral bearing whatsoever. Likewise, animal rights. We could go crazy with a concept like this, as many have, right? But the reality is that, that treating animals inhumanely is wrong in God's eyes. It says in the scripture that the righteous man has regard even for the life of his beast. I forgot to write down the citation, but I think it's in Proverbs. The righteous man regards even the life of his beast. So if, we, if you're going to think about keeping animals, you've got to think about keeping them in a humane condition. doesn't mean you need to go you know, buy them expensive beds and you know, toys and 
coats and clothes and you know so on and so forth like obviously people go nuts with this whole concept but we should think it matters to God how we treat animals because it's not just the spiritual that God is concerned about but also the physical heaven is not leaving the physical behind and escaping to the spiritual rather heaven is the renewal and restoration of the physical and well and the spiritual the hope is not that one day we'll be gone and we won't have to consider these things the hope rather is that one day all these sorts of things will be renewed and we will both enjoy and steward the material world as God intended. So as I said in the beginning, exclusively immaterial piety is unbiblical piety. If your conception of Christian life and duty and experience and hope is exclusively immaterial and does not count, account for things like bodies and earth and dirt and animals and plant life and so forth, then your conception of Christian life and duty and experience and hope is unbiblical. Jesus took on flesh in order to redeem our bodies as well as our souls. As Job said, this is the hope of every believer. In my flesh, I shall see God. And even creation itself is going to be free from its bondage to corruption. As Irenaeus said, if there are going to be physical men, there's got to be a physical place for them to be. And this is the conception that we should have about eternity and heaven. The dwelling place of God with man in the new heavens and the new earth. The new creation model over against the spiritual vision model.